0: Prince of Peace, be with us this morning. Calm our troubled hearts. Help us to not be distracted by the noise of this world. Father, I pray that in your presence we would have the fullness of joy this morning. I pray that as we read your word and as we listen to this sermon being proclaimed, Father, I pray that you would do some introspection Lord, that we would do with some introspection, that you would search our hearts so that we might see how we doubt you, see where we are faithless, and repent of that, Father. Cause us to see Christ as more infinitely glorious than we've ever seen him this morning. Help, him to see, help us to see how he perfectly deals with the human condition, the broken, fallen, sinful human condition that, that we have, Lord, that is filled with grief, doubts, and fear. I thank you that you are a perfect and a sufficient Savior, and that by faith we know that you are with us this morning. Help us to worship you with the right reverence, fear, joy, and awe of knowing that you are with us in this church. Superintend my thoughts and words that, that you might speak through me, God, and that we as a church might be grown, encouraged, and strengthened. May you do these things by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. The New York Times ran an interesting story that I saw yesterday as I was preparing the sermon. It caught my attention because it was dealing with the resurrection. I guess last week, a crew of specialists uh, went to what they think to be the, the tomb of Jesus in Jerusalem's old city. They found the limestone burial bed. Well, they, they had found it, but it hadn't been accessed for, for years For 60 hours, specialists collected samples, took photographs, and reinforced the tomb before resealing it. That's the reason why they they opened up the tomb, is because they needed to structurally reinforce it, because it's part of a project going on there. By the time um, the person who wrote this article visited one evening, the tomb had already been closed again. And in the end, just about 50 or so priests, monks, scientists, and workers got to peer inside the tomb. And they seem uh, likely to be the only ones on the planet who will do so in our lifetimes. Talk A, a quote from one of the um, special engineers that was on the project, he said, the team felt the pressure. We had to be very careful. It was not just a tomb we had to open. It was the tomb of Jesus Christ. It is the symbol of all Christianity. And he said, and not only for them, but also for other religions. That slab had not been seen Since the 1500s, the team that worked around the clock for three days gathered dirt, material, and from inside the tomb for future study. They closed it again quickly to avoid disrupting the visits from pilgrims as they they flock there every single day. So I thought this was an interesting article, that they actually opened this tomb of what they think to be the tomb of Christ. Now, I'll always have to take that with a grain of salt, um, because... we, we have to weigh in all the evidence, but even with that said, it's it's amazing that this story like this would make the New York Times and that over since the 1500s, this thing has not been opened. Um, here this morning in our passage, we have an empty tomb. In the, possibly this very tomb, Mary was stooping down to look in and was weeping because her Savior's body was not there. What this article reminds me of and what it should remind us of is that we worship a historical Christ. There's historicity to Christianity, and that means that Jesus was a real person, and that there is a real tomb, whether it's that one or whether it's somewhere else, that is somewhere you can go to and physically visit in the world. That this happened, this occurrence of the resurrection of Christ, isn't just some parable or some symbol to give us some, some hope, but it is a real event that happened in history, and therefore because it really happened, Jesus can deal with the very real problems in your life because Jesus really rose from the dead out of a real historical tomb in a in a real place and location that you can still go today, that means that you and I can really be raised from the dead as well. We don't have to just say, oh, the resurrection gives me hope that I can do things and it's just a fun story. But no, you can have true hope that if your faith is in Christ that you can be saved and you can be raised with him one day as well. So we are uh, Christians and we are, have a historic, real religion. Another thing that stuck out to me from this article is that hundreds of people were flocking to this what they call a holy site, almost worshiping the ground and the tomb. But what wasn't mentioned in the article is that Jesus was not in that tomb. So where is he? It begs the question. And the great news is that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling the universe at this moment. And simultaneously, as he promised in Matthew, he is with us until the end of the age. He is here this morning with you and I. And so that divine reality should blow your mind and it should cause you to, to give your full attention to, to any thoughts that come to try to distract you, to cast them away, to say, I'm in the presence of Jesus and he is among us. And it should, get, it should cause you to want to know him and see him for who he is. We don't have to go to a holy site, but we have, in this humble little church, the ability to come and with reverence and awe and worship the true Christ this morning. Amen? So that the title of the sermon this morning is Calmed, Corrected, and Commissioned. And it's from the passage that we just read in John 20, verses 11-31. through 31. We have the good news that the Prince of Peace is alive and well today, and he knows you through and through. And he is able to deal with the greatest painful grief that you might have in your life. He is able to calm your fears, and he's able to to take care of your doubts. However however frustrating they might be to you, he's able to to take care care of them and heal them and replace that with faith. This morning we'll see that, that through faith in the resurrected Christ, we are calmed, corrected, and commissioned. So, first, let's see how Christ calms us. In verses 1 through 11, or sorry, 11 through 18 in our passage, we see him first approaching Mary. Death brought grief to Mary. She loved her Lord and her Savior. And the fact that she went to the tomb and the fact that he wasn't there, she didn't know where his body was, caused her to weep. And the language is emphatic in the original. It's that her eyes were were weeping so hard that she could barely see, even such that she thought that Christ was a gardener, (laughs) and she didn't even she wasn't even apparently stunned by these angels. She was in such grief that she didn't stop and, and, and recoil seeing these two angelic creatures, and she didn't even recognize Christ. That's how profusely Mary was weeping. Grief is not sinful. It's a right human emotion. What we do with that grief matters. Jesus turns her grieving to elation when he reveals to her he's not, she, that he's not dead. He says to her, as we read in verses 15 through 17, he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So just by saying Mary to her, he was able to silence her grief and turn it into joy. Notice that Jesus does not distract Mary. He doesn't seek to suppress her grief. He doesn't tell her a lie. He also doesn't provide some hyper-suggestion for her to do. Say, oh, well, Mary, as long as you just say these mantras to yourself... Your grief will will go away. He doesn't give her a false promise. But Jesus deals with the heart of the matter. He deals with her grief. And he corrects her. He, He points out to the fact that her grief is not right. And we'll look at that in a second. But the fact is that Jesus is so merciful that he comes and he's able to still her tears. And he's able to silence her grief. Jesus is able to do the same for you and I this morning. Have you lost a loved one before in your life? Have you lost someone or something that you cared so deeply about that you spent days, weeks grieving that loss? I'm sorry if that's happened to you. The reality is that that will happen to each one of us in our lives, that we will lose some, someone that is close to us. And grief is the proper response. If we don't grieve, it, it almost shows that we didn't care about that person very much. So Christ gives us these human emotions that we have so that we can express them Christ is able to come and he's able to heal our grief in a way that nothing else and no one else can. Christ comes and reminds us that while people, pets, sports, and anything else in this world may fail us or may die or may go away, he reminds us that he is Lord and all those other things should fall into their proper place. That my wife and my children, I am to love them while they are with me and I am to steward them as gifts from God with the very realization that God gave them and he can take them away. My grief is right if anyone close to me dies. And yet, Christ comes and reminds me, and he reminds you in the midst of your grief, that anything in this world can be given and can, t- can be taken away, but he is everlasting. And that he is your Lord, and he's your savior. And if you have a relationship with him, you do not have to stay grieving, but you can know that God is sovereign, and there's a reason and there's a purpose for whatever that loss might be. No, there's, there's some ways that Christ cannot replace the love of a wife if you lose, lose, lose a wife or a spouse. But the love of Christ is sufficient to calm calm us, to stop our tears. And his love can overcome and supersede any hurt that we have. He's the one who can heal the wound that we have. God allows grief to come into our life to remind us that this life is finite and that our hope and our trust in any person, thing, or, or creation, we cannot make those things ultimate. And when we do, And when we we lift those things up to the status of Savior and we lose them, that's when our grief becomes sinful. That's when we start to idolize someone or something. And we hold on to it longer than we need to. And Christ comes and says to Mary, and he comes and says to you and I this morning, you need not do that. The same way he simply says one word. He says her name, Mary. And her grief turns to joy. He says that to you this morning. Many of you may not be grieving this morning, and I praise God if you're not, some of you might be. And like I said, if you're not this morning, then you likely will in the future. And when that moment comes, rather than holding on to the, the feelings of hurt and pain, you need to hear Christ saying your name. And when he speaks your name, you could know that all is well. Not that he will bring that person back, not that he's just going to distract you to put your head down in your job or or switch your affection to something else that will distract you. But he can tell you all is well because he is God and he is Savior and, and he is sovereign over that person's life and over yours. You can have a real hope that if they're a Christian then you will see that person again and you will spend eternity with them. You can have hope that even if they're not a Christian, if they spent their life rebelling against God, that God will deal with them justly. And whatever void that person left in your life, that void can be filled by Christ, your Savior and your King and your friend. And he seeks to fill that perfectly in all of our lives this morning. So he is, he is the perfect counselor. He comes to us and deals with our grief exactly how we need it to be dealt with. He doesn't only deal with grief, but look later in this passage. He also shows up to the disciples and he deals with their fear. He brings perfect peace to their fear. The disciples are locked, have locked themselves in the upper room because they're afraid that the Jews are going to come and persecute them and crucify him, them just the same way they did their Savior. And so they've holed themselves in. And yet Christ, being the resurrected Christ, doesn't have to unlock it, but just travels straight through that wall and enters into their presence, having the new resurrected body that he does have. And he says, peace be with you. And when he says that, it's, it's a common phrase that you use when you greet someone. And yet, his meaning by saying that had so much more fullness. Because he being the prince of peace says, peace be with you. Essentially, I am with you. And because I am with you, you need not fear death. You need not fear those who seek to persecute you. Seeing the resurrected Christ, it would have reminded them that they need not fear the Jews who have power to kill their body but cannot throw their spirit into hell. We know that because Christ showed that he defeated death, he can give them that same boldness to know that I don't need to fear death anymore either. I can go on and take this message to the world, and even if I am going to be persecuted, harmed, or killed, I know that I can go forth and do that because I will just get a new body like Christ has. And through faith in him, I can be raised, and that will be what is best for me. And so he was able to bring peace to their fears because the the harm that they anticipated would not be ultimate harm. It would be temporary, and in relation to their eternal bodies that they would have, the resurrected bodies they would have, it it was just a little prick. It was nothing to fear anymore. And so he brought that peace to his disciples when he came into their presence and said, peace be with you. Because the Prince of Peace is with you as well, you can face any opposition with peace, knowing that there's nothing that's outside of God's control. And anything that harms you is something within God's perfect loving hand of sovereignty that he allows to harm you. And he's only allowing any sort of harm or hardship to come into your life because he's seeking your greater good in that. He's seeking to grow you through it, and he's seeking to bring about ultimately his glory and your joy. And so we need not fear uh, anything as great as being killed and being, as, let's say, as Christians, being persecuted, even in this nation, down to even smaller, more minuscule things like fearing man or, or showing up in a group and, and fearing people's opinion of us, worrying whether they, they might look highly upon us or look down upon us. We don't need to fear those things because the word of our Lord is what defines us. And his word of peace Saying, peace be with you, I am with you, gives us the reality that we don't need to be worried about harm coming upon us. We don't need to fear affirmation from people in whose nostrils is breath, as Isaiah says. But if the God of this world, if your creator is with you and he's saying, I am with you and peace is with you, then you can be assured that there's nothing that He's gonna he's going to give you with that he will not always walk right alongside you to handle. And if you're tempted, he'll always provide a way out, as Hebrews 10 reminds us. In Hebrews 13, 6, it says that, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So the, the author of Hebrews recognizes that if the Lord is his helper, he need not fear. What can man do to him? He says that hypothetical question, knowing that man can do things to him, he can hurt him but in proportion to the peace of Christ, in proportion to what happens after you might be harmed or killed, it makes that harm insignificant and causes all the fear to cease. Because Christ defeated death, we don't have to fear it or anything that might lead to it. You'll be glad too as long as you open your eyes and your faith is in the Lord. So we can see here that When he said, peace be with you, they were glad. And it's because they saw that their Savior was alive. Will Christ come and show himself physically to you? Will he show up at your doorstep? No, he won't. So it requires faith to see him. And it requires faith to see him clearly through his word. And as we see him through faith, we too can be glad and not fear. Christ, the calmer of our souls, doesn't stop there, but he deals with Thomas's doubt as well. We see in verses 24 through 29 that doubt is met with assurance. So some of you might be struggling with doubt. Others of you might say that I don't struggle with doubt, but when you're pressed into a difficult situation, when something comes into your life that that is hard for you and it is bleak, in that moment doubt may arise. And so we see Jesus confronting Thomas's doubt by graciously showing him evidence the evidence Thomas was looking for and approached him in a loving way not in arrogant posture but in a loving merciful way Jesus will never turn away those who seek him in humility and he will deal with your doubts he can handle it he's god and so if we bring to him our doubts and study the scripture and see what we're doubting specifically the passage that Jeremy read in in Peter about the word being sufficient for everything that pertains to life and godliness, he can still those doubts and he can answer those questions. There's some things that will be left a mystery. Why something happens at this time or the other? And we will not have an answer to every single thing that we might be asking. But Christ shows here that we don't need to know every answer to every question we have in the universe so far as we know the Savior, that doubt can be eclipsed by assurance in him. And we can know that while we may not know, it doesn't, it's okay because we're not God, but he knows. And because he knows and we have faith in him, we can trust him. And we can have assurance that we can move forward and he will give us everything we need for life and godliness, and that is sufficient. Christ- Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. So we've seen that throughout history, people have tried to destroy Christianity, have tried to undercut the validity of Scripture. People have brought their doubts, and yet Christianity is still going strong, and it's still going forward, and the gospel is still being proclaimed to the ends of the earth, and the gates of Hades have not prevailed against God's church. We see that God can handle our doubts. Now, we'll see here in a second as well that. That Jesus doesn't simply say, well, you know, I invite everyone in the world to come and examine me. That I I willingly want to sit and let atheists and people who hate me and who live in rebellion to me, I want them to come and question me and put me on the stand. He's not saying that. We'll see in a second that he corrects Thomas and rebukes him for his doubt. And he will come and correct and rebuke your doubt as well because he has provided sufficiency in his word for you to be able to know him and to be able to have your questions answered. So there's no reason why we should doubt him. His revelation is clear. But what we can't lose sight of is the fact that Jesus, before correcting him, before dealing with his error, Jesus comes and he brings peace to Thomas. He comes and he's merciful with him and he lets him see the wounds in his hands. He comes down, he condescends, comes to Thomas's level and deals with him because he loves Thomas and he wants to show him that he is true and he is real. Jesus can do the same for you, and he does. Now, we don't have Jesus, again, physically here to touch, to see, and to still our doubts in the, the naturalistic sense as we looked at last week. Jesus doesn't say, I'll jump into a test tube for you to examine me and for you to figure out by your own uh, intelligence that I am true. He doesn't subject himself to that, but Jesus does give us His word and His revelation, and He says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. I and and you do not. And even though you might have doubts, you might not know if He's true. You can bring that to Him, and He will prove to be true time and time again. So I invite you to come with your doubts, come with your fears, come with your grief, to the Savior. This side of heaven, will we be perfect? Will we never struggle with any of these things anymore? No. And what I am not saying, and what Christ isn't showing us in this passage, is that he's just the silver bullet, that if you just put your simple faith in him, everything will be fine, and life will just be dandy. That's not what is being said here. What's being said here is that we have a true source Uh, of comfort, we have a true source of peace that we can come to and bring all of our struggles to. And he is able to silence them. He is able to still them and replace them with his perfect peace. So would you do that this morning? Would you bring those to the Savior? I want to tell you about the life of William Cooper, a a, a famous uh, songwriter who was friends with John Newton. And Newton, as we know, wrote Amazing Grace. And Cooper wrote songs we sing that they're a fountain filled with blood. Um, and also the other one about um, uh, his, his pro- sorry, I didn't write it down, but, but God's providence um, looking like dark clouds, but then him actually having a smiling face behind those clouds. So William Cooper wrote these songs that we sing. He had a very troubled life, and he was able to find Christ to be his perfect peace. He had a mother that died at the age of six. He had paralyzing depression. He had mental breakdowns. He had a seven year relationship. He was engaged to be married, and and the fiance's father called it off. He tried three different ways to commit suicide and was put into an insane asylum. His doctor, Dr. Cotton, shared the gospel with him, and William Cooper read the scriptures, and God saved him. He was able to write the following lyrics. As much trouble as he went through and still struggled with to the end of his life, William Cooper was able to say this. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. For since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. We're talking about someone who struggled with the deepest depression, who had those that were closest to him in his life be, be ripped away from him, have a woman who he had such love for and was engaged for seven years, not, never followed through and wasn't able to marry her. I'm not saying that his struggles are any harder than yours. Everyone has different trials and struggles they go through. But this is a man that was confronted with the love of Christ and was preached the gospel to. We see that although he continued to refer to himself as a dying thief, he was able to rejoice and say that redeeming love shall be my theme and shall be till I die. I pray the same for you this morning, that whatever you might be going through, you might say, redeeming love is my theme, that I bring all my troubles to Christ, and he's able to silence them. What peace are you currently forfeiting because you've neglected to seek the Savior through his word? Think about that. Have you considered that the trials in your life are the very means by which God wants to give you true peace in the Savior rather than than just taking those problems away? Notice here that he doesn't take the problems away. For the sake of the disciples, they are locked behind these doors fearing that they'll be killed. And church history tells us that most of them were indeed killed. So Christ does not take the danger away, but he brings his presence And so it's important for you to ask and for me to ask, what trials is God keeping in your life right now? What things are hard for you that you think are too hard for me to bear, that are too hard for you to bear alone, that God wants you to rely upon Christ and to see his presence in your life so that you can handle them in a God-honoring way and so that you will be grown to have greater faith in the Savior. I want you to think about those things. And as you read this verse, remember that this this same Savior comes to you this morning. He's with us, and he is able to provide that perfect peace. So not only is he the calmer of our storms, but he also corrects our faithlessness. Jesus corrects our faithlessness, just as he corrected Mary's, the disciples, and Thomas's. We read in verse 15 and in verse 29 of our passage, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So Jesus confronts her and says, Woman, why are you weeping? Also in verse 29, he corrects their faithlessness. He says, After confronting Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who, who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus cares about them just as He cares about you. because He created you and knows your thoughts and He knows your situation perfectly. We see in Psalm 139,2 through4, "Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So he knows you perfectly. He knows what your struggles are. And he comes to you with the exact balm you need, with the perfect medicine to apply to your situation, to correct you in a way that brings you the best healing, stretches you the most, and brings God the most glory. Although he will not approach you in the flesh, like I said, Christ's desire is to draw you out and ask you questions through his word. We read in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God has given us his word to draw us out. It is a living word. And as we read it, and as we don't just read it as a history book, but read it as if we are truly what we are doing is interacting with God hearing his word and replying to him in prayer as we have that relationship his word will draw you out his word seeks to draw you out to understand so that you can understand yourself understand your struggles and he will shine light upon them show you your faithlessness and then correct them he will graciously lovingly sometimes gently sometimes violently correct your faithlessness and he does it he does so for your ultimate good. Notice here how gracious Jesus is with the people he corrects. In verse 16, 21, and 27, we see him rebuking Mary, Thomas, and the disciples with surgeon-like precision. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't come to them with a hammer and say and he, he doesn't like like, like he did um, when he entered the temple and flipped over the tables. He doesn't come to them in anger, which he, he had a right to and he could have. But instead, he's gracious, and he, he deals with Mary. He says, Mary, why are you weeping? He comes to Thomas, and he lets him touch his hands and his side. He comes to the disciples and says, peace be with you. He doesn't say, you idiots, why are you afraid? No, he comes to them with great mercy. Jesus made it clear to them that he would be raised previously in the Gospels. In Matthew sixteen twenty-one, he says explicitly that after three days he would rise from the dead. So Mary, the disciples, and Thomas's lack of trust in Christ being alive, being raised from the dead, their lack of trust is a belittling of Christ's words. It's a lack of trust in the Savior, and that's a grievous sin. And so the question for us this morning is, how is it that Christ showed such great compassion toward them, the disciples' faithlessness, Mary's faithlessness, Thomas's faithl- faithlessness, and dealt so sternly and harshly with the Pharisees, calling the Pharisees children of the devil? Was it that Mary, Thomas, and the disciples were more deserving of grace? Was it, they were, was it that they were better people? Did they have more value? No, that's not. The reason why Christ was able to extend and be merciful toward them was the good news of the gospel. What happened was that Christ came into the world to die for the sins of his elect, of his children, of his sheep, as we're told er, as we were told earlier in John six. He knows who he is dying for and he's not dying for those who would live their entire life in rebellion against him, but he's dying for those who would repent and put their faith in him. He died for the elect, and in that definite atonement uh, to a specific people, he's able to place his love on them not because they're better than the Pharisees, not because they're better than than the wicked, but because they are wicked, and he's choosing to set his love on them because of the counsel of his will, because it will bring God the most glory in his divine plan. So he's able to show mercy towards Mary, Thomas, and the disciples, because on the cross, what happened was all of their faithlessness was placed on Christ's shoulders. The faithlessness that belittles the glory of God, Christ took upon himself. He took the punishment for their faithlessness, He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we and so that they might become the righteousness of God. Mary, Thomas, and the disciples did not, there's nothing good in them that that caused Christ to be tender and gentle with them. But it was because their punishment had already been absorbed on the cross. And because their faithlessness had been completely forgiven, Christ was able to bring peace to them and he was able to deal with them in a a tender and compassionate way because he didn't look at them as criminals any longer he had just paid for their debt and he had looked at them as beautiful radiant sons and daughters of the living God co-heirs to the grace of life that's how he approached them and he was able to because all, all of their wicked deeds had already been placed on his shoulders and he saw them in him he saw them as clothed in his own righteousness and because he did, he, he was able to do that for them, and he's able to do that for you this morning. If you have repented and placed your faith in Christ, Christ can approach you tenderly as well. Richard Sibbs says that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That's from a bruised reed. Christ knows you well enough to know whether you need to be sharply rebuked and knocked off your horse, like Saul was when, when God made him Paul. He also knows when you need to be encouraged. He will come with surgeon-like precision and deal with whatever is troubling you. We must learn from this as well. We are called to, to correct, rebuke, exhort, to teach, to encourage each other in the church. And I know for me, I am guilty so often as coming with a hammer... Toward um, toward brothers and sisters, and not drawing them out with questions, not seeking to know them, but trying to slap a verse onto their life and onto their situation that I think will help. And there might, it might there might be truth to it, but it isn't seeking to know that person and love them in a way that will best help them. That will best love them. But it's oh well, how can Kurt do what the what the right thing is in a passage like this this morning. It comes and rebukes me. It says, Kurt, no, you need to be more like Christ. You need to rebuke and correct in the way that he did. He didn't come with a hammer toward Mary, but he came and it says It says later, he said, stop clinging to me, which implies that he let her come and hug him. So he didn't just say back off woman. He referred to him as woman as, as he did with his mom in John 2, which was a very formal um, but it wasn't any uh, d- d- demeaning term. It was a very formal um, way to address Mary. And he dealt with her in such a way that um, brought calm to her troubled heart and reminded him that he was alive. And he, but he didn't let her stay in that faithlessness. He says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. And so he says that, you know, I have more work to do. So rather than coddling her or being her enabler to say, you know you know what, Mary, I'm just going to set up shop and I'm going to live the rest of my life with you so that you can be calmed. No, he says, I have a mission to accomplish. I'm going to go and do that. And b- before I do, I'm going to equip you with the means so that you can have faith in me so that your, your peace isn't contingent on my physical presence, but that I can be with you through your eyes of faith. So he does not enable or agree with their sin and their faithlessness. With Thomas, notice how he lets him touch his hands inside, but he says right after that, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. So in a sense, he's, he's implying that, that Thomas doesn't have that same blessing. That he, it took his physical presence for Thomas to believe, and yes, he, he equips Thomas and sends him out and uses him, and Thomas is a believer. And yet the blessing of, of knowing Christ through faith, he lets Thomas know that, no, you, you forsook that blessing whenever you did not choose to trust me. I will still come to you, and I will still be gracious with you, and I will equip you with that faith that you can have for the rest of your life. But it was not right for you, and you were not blessed in needing to see my physical body. You and I are tempted to overlook sin in others at times because we don't want to face our own sin. Christ doesn't like that. He's sinless. And so he doesn't avoid talking to people about sin. He doesn't avoid correction. Because his ultimate desire is not for people to like him, to be the most popular person in the world, but his desire is to have these people be the best worship of, worshipers of God possible. And he knows that in order for that to be the case, he must eradicate the sin in their lives and must come to them with that scalpel to cut that out so he does not overlook sin but he, he corrects them for it he loves us too much to allow us to continue to continue in our sin sinful faithlessness and so for you an important application for this is are you quick to accept correction from the lord the verse we read in Hebrews 4 that says that his, his word is sharper than a, a double-edged sword, do you place yourself underneath that sword? Do you seek to be corrected by Christ, or do you just seek to pick out verses that agree with your, with your life? It's important that you see that you have fallen short of the glory of God, and yet Christ comes to you tenderly and mercifully to correct you, to make you more like him. And it's going to be a slow, it's going to be a painful process, but if he saved you, he's going to make sure that you're, you're not only sanctified, but you'll be glorified one day as well. And that day is the day that you won't have nothing else to correct, but you will be sinless in that day. But until then, we go on as pilgrims, seeking to be corrected by Christ and correcting one another in love, with tenderness and compassion, with surgeon-like precision. God has given us this body of Christ so that we can grow one another. I pray that you do not neglect that task. I pray that if you see sin in someone else's life, that you first inspect yourself, make sure you don't have a log. If you do, take that log out and go address that sin with surgeon-like precision, with great love and compassion. So Jesus not only calms his disciples, but he corrects them as well. Our last point he doesn't correct them to sit around. He, he corrects them so that they might have a right understanding of him, so that they can take that right understanding and communicate it to the broken, lost, dying world that they live in. He wants that, that message of the gospel to not just stick with those disciples, but be carried on from generation to generation so that you and I, as we sit in this room, and as we are disciples of Christ, so that we can be calmed, corrected, and then commissioned and sent out to provide that same healing and that same correction to a faithless world, to a a world that believes false things about the Savior, a world filled with darkness and lies. We are commissioned to go and provide and provide um, the gospel to them to, to to preach the gospel so that they may know Him and so they may they may repent and believe. So you and I are commissioned. The verse here is interesting when he commissions Mary. He says to her, what what he says to her is actually astounding. He says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, while that that language might not sound very shocking or groundbreaking to us, this is the first time that Jesus referred to his disciples as, as brothers and that he in the past referred to them as, as his friends, as his servants, but here he's giving Mary a message to deliver to the disciples that my father is your father, that my God is your God, and that they can have the assurance of knowing God the Father now that Christ is alive. So Jesus commissions her to be an adoption agent of sort. And so the, the term being an adoption agent has, has an understanding for, we have an understanding of what that means in our culture, but we are ty- we're a type of adoption agent if we are to be commissioned, if we are to be evangelists. We are to find orphans in the world, find people who are spiritually orphaned, at enmity with God, disconnected, left out to die, terrible condition, and we are to introduce them to the Father. We are to go out and to find people who are hopeless, and to give them hope. We are to tell them about the good news of, uh, of Christ and the work he did on the cross, so that the same way that Mary said to the disciples that it's Christ God and your God, his father and your father, we want to be able to say that to people as well. After they've repented and placed their faith in Christ, we can tell them that, that God desires for you to be his child, and you must repent and believe. You must deal with with the, f- with the fact that you've been his enemy before you can. So we are called to be adoption agents in a sense. It's amazing that God would choose Mary, a woman, to be the first post-resurrection evangelist in that culture. Think about how it was just, it was a, a culture built on patriarchy and um, and and male leadership, and, and while there's some positive um, concepts and positive things about that culture, um it's, it would have been shocking to the, the readers of, of this gospel and to the early church, and might even be a little shocking to us that God would choose a woman to be the first post-resurrection evangelist. That shows God's view of women. Women are not second-class citizens. Women are not to to simply sit on, on the sidelines and feel like, I don't have a place in God's economy. But women are to be evangelists as well. I mean, we, we believe as as. Bible-believing Baptists, that women are not to have authority or to teach men, as it's clear in, in, in Timothy, but we women are to go and to be evangelists, to take the good news, to know the good news, and be able to articulate it in a way that is clear, so that God might be glorified. In, it's very like God to take the weak things of the world, to take the things that the world looks on and sees as foolish or sees as less than and to use them as the messenger for his powerful, amazing message. I think he does that so that the message itself is highlighted and so that you, have, there's, you can say that though there's nothing about the messenger that makes the message glorious, but because he uses broken vessels, he keeps that, that glory in those vessels so that the glory of the message itself might be what is... Um, understood and it's it's God himself that is praised not the person. So we are to take this message to the world as well. We can no longer live in grief fear and doubt and let those things cripple us but because we are reconciled to God and we've been healed and corrected we can go and we can go take this message that Christ is Lord to the world. And through submission to him, people can be healed and be made one with the Father. Can we do this alone? Can you and I go out on our own strength because we've learned these things and they're in our mind? Can we go out and just do this? Are we like real estate salespeople who just know the facts about a house and know how to to play it up and know how to sell it in an interesting or intriguing way? No, we're much more than that. This message is a supernatural message. And so you and I need supernatural help in order to take this message to the world. We see that help provided in verses 21 and 22. We read, "Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you." And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit." So even though it's the easy thing would have been to stay behind locked doors, Christ had a different plan for the disciples. He wanted them to go out from behind those doors and go into the world a world that would kill them eventually, and to, by the Spirit's power, preach the gospel. We, you and I, are equipped with the Spirit too, the third person of the holy triune God. And we're equipped with the Spirit so that we can fight against spiritual forces, so that we can have the power of the gospel be preached through us, knowing that it's not me who's powerful, it's not my words that are eloquent, but it's the Holy Spirit who, is, who provides unction to my words, and that it's through his power it hits dead ears and makes them alive. We cannot build this church. The disciples cannot have, could not have built this church on their own, on, on their own strength. It requires God himself to be present with them, and we need God with us this morning if we're to be adoption agents to go into this dying world. an interesting thing to note here is that he breathes and they receive the spirit. It reflects Genesis 2 in the beginning when God breathes life and his spirit into mankind. And so we know that in the new birth that, that new life is breathed into us. And here Christ breathes out in their presence and he says to receive the Holy Spirit. Now what's interesting is that we know that they already had the holy spirit they are fully dwelled with indwelt with the holy spirit because these disciples were saved at this point that they had a saving faith in christ and we know that what happens on pentecost in the books of book of acts is that the holy spirit comes down and there's flames of fire and that there's supernatural work that takes place and that three thousand are added to the number that day and we know that the spirit comes then and so a lot of times people wonder, well, what is this giving of the Spirit here? Is there like a partial Spirit that you give a little, you know, one portion and then a little more and then you have a little more of the Spirit? If so, should, should I be seeking for more Spirit today? No, that's not the case at all. They were already filled and had the fullness of, of God in them because they were saved by his grace. They had the Spirit. And yet what Christ is doing here is similar to when he washed the disciples' feet. He's providing them an illustration or example to tell them of the work they are to do. When when Christ instructed them to to, to wash each other's feet, he wasn't saying, your task, disciples, is to go out and to open up a a foot salon. That wasn't wasn't the task for the church. It was to serve and to do the lowliest thing that, that was imaginable in that time. Likewise, when he breathes, he's not saying have the Spirit, and the Spirit is entering them now. They already had the Spirit. And the Spirit would equip them in a special way on Pentecost. So what is happening here is when he's equipping these disciples to go carry the Great Commission out, he's telling them that the Spirit will be with you. And he's symbolically breathing, saying that my Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the ministry you've seen with your eyes, that same ministry you are to carry forth now. So it's a, a passing of a, a baton in sorts. But we know clear, clearly from John seven thirty nine that the disciples were told to wait for the Spirit to come. And it said that he would not be sent until Christ was glorified or went back up into heaven to be with the Father. So Christ is not glorified until Acts 1. And so we know that this is not yet the giving of the Spirit. But with all of that aside... This, this symbolism and this message is, is laden with power, and you and I should see that if we are to be disciples to carry out this message, to establish the church, and to be the church, we cannot do this alone, but we must do it in the power of the Spirit. So the question that is anticipated is, okay, you're giving us the Spirit, you're telling us to go out from behind these locked doors, but what are we to do And who are we to go to? What is this work that you would have for us? We have an answer to that in verse 23. It says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So on the surface, this mission statement, to forgive, and if you forgive the sins of any, they'll be forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it'll be withheld On the surface, this seems like a strange mission statement. Some of you who have come out of the Roman Catholic Church might be like, oh, well, that's what they're doing there. The priests absolve sins, and if they say, well, you're forgiven, then they're forgiven. And if the the church says, oh, well, we don't forgive you, then you're not forgiven. So that's not what's going on here, and, and don't be mistaken. We must understand this, and I, I can understand this is a little bit of a difficult text, but we must understand it in light of clearer texts. We have some very clear, clear ones. Mark 2.7 and Daniel 9.9 9 both tell us that God alone can forgive sin. So he's not saying, disciples go out, and if you just tell someone they're forgiven, they're forgiven. He's not giving them the power to save as Unfortunately, the, the Catholic Church does today. says that, you know, priests can absolve people's sin on their own volition. So then what, if he's not saying that we're to be the ones that forgive people, then what is he telling them to do here? And what is the church's mission? Because the Bible is one harmonious, cohesive, non-contradicting unit, breathed out by God, who cannot lie and cannot contradict himself we can look at other similar verses to help provide what the right meaning of this is. So if we look at Matthew 16 and 18 of the authority that the church has given of the keys of the kingdom, we can understand this passage in light of that and it makes a lot more sense. So let me read Matthew 16:19 to you and Matthew 18 as well. <clears throat> I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whether you, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then later in Matthew 18, <clears throat> if someone who refuses to repent, um, it, it, it goes um, through the context of approaching him once, um, bringing two or more people with them if you f- if he refuses to repent, telling it to the church. So we're here, here in Matthew 18, verses 7 through 18. If he refuses to listen, t- listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what do we know then? How can we interpret these passages in light of some clearer ones? What he's calling us to do here is to take the message of forgiveness to the world. And if as God's people, as the church, if we say, If we tell them the message of the gospel and Christ truly does forgive them, then the fruit of that forgiveness will be evident in their lives. And they will testify to God's work in their lives. And it's our job as a church to to test the validity of that statement. To say, yes, we affirm you to be a brother in Christ. that, That yes, you have been forgiven and you are one of us and you are a believer. Similarly, we as a church have been given the keys to determine when one is not repentant and their life shows that they have not received forgiveness. So then we are to likewise say that, no, you, are not, you're, you have not been forgiven by God. That if their life shows if they live like the devil and it's co- in contradiction to the word of God and they're not willing to repent— then we as a church cannot affirm that they are part of the true church and connected to Christ. So in that way, um, we, are to, um, we are to forgive, and we are to—we don't withhold forgiveness, but we are to say that, no, you have not truly repented, and you have not been forgiven yet. And we are not to invite you to take the Lord, partake of the Lord's table. We're not going to get gonna include you in membership and treat you like a brother if you're not acting like one. And so what Christ is commissioning you and I to do and what he's commissioning to the disciples to do is essentially to build the church. And a lot of times we like to focus on the, the positive aspects of it, of going out and making disciples. But what's just as important is the back door as well, of making sure that, making sure that the church remains pure. And the church doesn't just become this place where rampant sin is allowed to, is, is allowed to uh, persist, but we also have the responsibility to say, no, you have not repented as well. In that way, we preserve the purity of Christ's bride, and we sanctify the bride, and we continue to allow the church to be a place that sinners gather to seek seek restoration, but we don't let it get watered down to a place where it's filled with wolves, and the teaching becomes diluted where there's no fellowship at all. We as a church must be adoption agents, but, like, any good, loving, adoptive father, you also have to realize that if there's something that's coming to harm, if there's lies that come in to to disrupt your family, if you love that person, if you love your child, you will protect as well. And our culture hates that. Our culture hates that you would define love in a way that says that there's boundaries, or that you have to say that any person isn't just unconditionally brought in. And it doesn't matter what they believe or how they act, but they can be one of us as well. Our culture hates that. It tries to flatten everything out and to say that um, don't discriminate, be tolerant. But this verse here, we, on our commission, is to go and to preach the gospel and also guard the purity and sanctity of Christ's bride. You and I, we are the bride of Christ corporately. And God's mission in the world is to reconcile people to him, but it's also to purify his bride. So know that you have a dual purpose. You you are to both evangelize and you are to both to, to to go out of these walls, but while you're here and while you are being the church, it's also your your job and your role to protect this church, to love those within your midst, to get to know them well enough to to validate whether they are a true Christian or not, and to... to encourage rebuke correct so that they can be more so that they can be purified so that the church overall is purified we are given this great calling here and we are commissioned to go out and to do this work to to bring peace and to bring correction to a world filled with lies so the purpose of john's book we see in verse 31 meshes with this well The purpose of the book is seen, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We know that none of these things are possible without believing in Christ. We know that it is belief in his name that empowers us to, by faith, go out and to spend our life doing something that the world looks at as foolish. Who would want to spend a Saturday evening serving people... At the Salvation Army who have nothing good to give back to them? Who would want to go on a Thanksgiving and disrupt a peaceful dinner by talking about spiritual truth if if this if this thing really isn't true? But we are told in verse 31, the thesis of this whole book is that by believing in Christ, you may have life in his name. And so while we enter a world of death and darkness, we it's our goal and our mission to bring spiritual life, and we can only do that through faith, through believing in Christ's name. Jim Neuheiser um, of the IBCD New Counseling, he gives a, a great example of, of living this out, and he, he gives the example of the fact that he's a coin collector, and he went to a, a country, Oman, and bought some coins and brought them back, to see if they were, it brought them back to the States and it went to a coin shop to see if they were if they were frauds, if or counterfeit money, or if they were real. They were weighed on a scale that the scale can can tell if they are if they are true coins or not. And one was real and the other one wasn't. Very simple example, but in the same way. We are to go out and we are to find coins. We are to find people that are lost. We are to bring them in, and we are to weigh them. We are not to only to tell them of the good news of the gospel, but we are to examine their life and weigh them and see if they are counterfeit or not. And if they are counterfeit, we do not want them on a road to hell. We don't want them to be those people in in, in Matthew 7 that say, Lord, Lord, I did all these great things in your name, and that and yet he says, I never knew you. We want to tell them for that you are a counterfeit, that you're living a a lie that you're living a lie and although you might be deceived into thinking you're a Christian, you're not. And by doing so, we are truly loving that person and we don't do it because we're better but we do that in hopes that they'll come to realization that they have been deceived in hopes that God can, before they die, still save them and make them a true child. So it's so important that we don't shy away from that work, however uncomfortable it might be, but that we go forward into the world, and we, we seek to, to be coin collectors, to bring those in that are true into the body, so that we might have fellowship with them, and to warn those that are counterfeits. For those of us who are true coins, it's God's desire to keep shining us off, to keep polishing us, so that we might be prepared for heaven, so that these trials that we face prepare us for that weight of glory beyond all comparison. That He's bringing these trials in your life so that you might see that he is the wonderful counselor, that he is the prince of peace, and that by clinging to him you will have peace, that your grief can go away, not by him taking away the problem. I pray that you know that to be true, and I pray that from this day forward, when you deal with fear, when you deal with doubt, That you don't just say, you know, oh, I've got to struggle through this. But you bring those before the Savior. And through faith in his word, knowing that he will not show up to you in person, but through faith in his word, you will open it up, and that double-edged sword will examine you. And it will cast out your doubts. It will still your fears. And it will calm your grief. Is your faith in the resurrected Christ this morning? Do you believe in a historical, a real Christ who is alive and who is amongst us? Do you believe that he's not only uh, only able to correct you, but he has commissioned you that you have a work to do? I pray that you are rejuvenated in that work this morning by being reminded of the great work you have to do to go out, to be a light to those who are in the darkness. Have you become comfortable and insulated? Or do the trials that you face in life Are those trials fuel for you to go forward and say, Christ is the sufficient Savior? The trials show that the things of this world are not what I'm clinging to. That's not where my comfort lies, but it's with a sufficient Savior. And do those trials hold you back from from that commission, from going forward and to extending yourself? Or do they fuel you to go forward and extend yourself, to be commissioned to take the gospel where it's needed most? I pray the latter is the case. I pray that the trials do drive you nearer to your Savior, and I pray that you, pref- you find him to be the sufficient Lord that he truly is. Cast all of your doubt, cast all of your grief, and cast all of your fear onto him this morning. Trust in him through the eyes of faith, and he will heal you, and he will use you to do mighty things in his name. Let's pray that our church will be faithful to that work. great God and Savior. We are faithless. Lord, we, like Thomas, don't trust your word. And yet, Lord, you've graciously and patiently come to us. You've showed us the holes in your hands and your side. Lord, you've showed us through your reliable word. Help us to trust in its sufficiency this morning and help us to be calmed, corrected, and commissioned by you. Lord, may we not shy away from being the church. May we not shy away from seeking greater purity and thinking that love is only being nice. But Lord, help us to love in all spirit, and all truth, God, to love those that are counterfeits and to ward them of that reality, that they, that they might be true coins, that they, before they perish, have a chance to repent and be truly saved. Help us to love people that well, Lord. Knowing that you are alive and among us this morning, cause us to worship you. Father, may we, like Mary, no longer cry, but as you call each of our names and know each one of us by name, and I pray that we are calmed. And Father, I pray that we are excited about the great work you are sending us out to do. In Jesus' name, amen.